evidence and answers. At the beginning of the 117th House session, Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Rules Committee Chairman James P. McGovern announced new rules for the 117th Congress, which included changes to pronouns and familial relationships in the House rules to be gender neutral or remove references to gender. Terms such as father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister could no longer be used and must be replaced with gender neutral terms that would not be offensive such as parent, child, and sibling. We are witnessing a dangerous word revolution that threatens to unravel our culture. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat and his guest, Dr. Doug Matthews, will conclude their interview discussing the dangerous word revolution and how Christians must respond to this revolution. I think these movements are just uh, what Tom Oden talked about. They're groups that are just kind of stumbling around in the darkness, running on the fumes of modernity, looking for some personal meaning or some tribal meaning in what ultimately is a, a cosmos or a universe with no transcendent norm. And that's really dangerous. Yes, you know, without a solid definition and reference point of truth and a universal moral law, really you can't have freedom. Yeah, I think Osgin has talked about that freedom's triangle here. And one of the things you need in a democracy, you know, to work is the freedom of speech, which what you're saying here is being lost. And you can't have that once you take away those pillars of truth and morality. Amen. Uh, there, there's a scholar that I think every pastor, you know, should read, and this is the former socialist Michael Novak, and he had this triangle. Uh, he said, if you just have unbridled you know, capitalism, you know, without a moral framework, you're going to run into problems. So you, you need the, the free economy, but you can't have the free economy unless you have political freedom. So if you don't have political freedom, you won't have a free economy. If you don't have free distribution of wealth, then all of the power is going to be concentrated in a few groups, maybe some tech giants or uh, the government. Uh, and if you don't have uh, a framework for the political freedom and the economic freedom, which is Judeo-Christian morality, then you ultimately don't have the undergirding infrastructure to hold all of that together. And so uh, I think that it, that indeed is exactly what is playing out, uh, playing out before us. Yes, and, and you talk about how this revolution has you know, affected the church and that even in the church we're seeing this redefinition of terms. How is that happening? I mean, some churches and pastors not even aware it's going on. Absolutely, and and I really lived this, and and that's that's where I was kind of you know reading through the Bible devotions while I was working on this back in 2017 and listening to what's going on in culture, and I was aware of this somewhat. But you know, I'm going through Scripture and I'm seeing, wow, Jesus, Paul, the Johannine literature—they're constantly saying that there are individuals inside the church and outside the church that are redefining terms, because if you redefine the terms, you redefine the church, and you undermine the church that Christ established. And so, you know, you find the Apostle Paul uh, dealing with individuals that were redefining Jesus, or uh, spirit, or gospel, uh, apostles, false apostles, uh, angel, you know, angel of light, unrighteous servants. Uh, Jesus uh, clearly believed that people were improperly defining 
children of God. If you look through the Johannine literature in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, Abraham's children, and he had to reclaim that. People were redefining a divorce. If you go over to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you have uh, the Johannine literature that makes reference to those who have improperly defined Jews, that Jews are the people of faith and those with circumcised hearts, not people in synagogues that are persecuting the Christian church. And the Revelation literature then also says essentially there are true synagogues and there are false synagogues, therefore. And then the Revelation talks about how there's a false prophetess that is seducing the churches of Asia. And then this just continues in the early church period when you get beyond the biblical era and you find that many of the early conflicts in the church were groups that were trying to redefine Jesus as not having a physical body on the one hand or others that were denying his humanity on the other hand, which led, of course, to the Council of Nicaea, Chalcedon, Constantinople, 325, 381, 451. You had the critics of Christianity outside the church, and that's apologetics. Polemics is, is keeping the terms of pro- biblical inside the church. Apologetics is keeping the terms biblical outside the church. And you had people redefining the Lord's Supper as essentially an orgy, redefining allegiance to Christ, Christos Curius, Christ as Lord, as atheism, uh, you name it, and then you get into the 19th century, and wow, you find that what's called the classical liberal church, which really started with Schleiermacher in 1799 with his famous Raiden book, or the speeches, where he said you can still be a Christian and redefine all of these basic terms, and then by the time you get to uh, the year 1900, in most of the major denominations, every major doctrinal belief had been completely redefined in a lot of these major denominations. The return of Christ, for example, just meant that maybe good would would uh, win out over evil in the long run in history. Or the return of Christ uh, meant that uh, Christ was uh, somehow uh, coming back in the hearts of believers. And the resurrection of Christ didn't mean he bodily rose from the dead, which is clearly the biblical and the Hebraic view, but the resurrection of Christ meant that Christ lived on in the preaching of the disciples. The Trinity, I had a relative who was influenced by very liberal theology at Boston, and the Trinity had been redefined from a coexistent, co-eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to sort of these uh, impulses within the divine reality or force that were oftentimes in conflict with each other. So, you know, every every doctrine you can think of, God, sin, salvation, were all redefined, and that swept through the churches and swept through so many of the seminaries that the church, by and large, lost its power to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ as it was originally proclaimed and consistent with the Bible, and that means that the church lost its saltiness and lost its light. And I think that set us up for this cultural decay, this mod rot uh, that we're now experiencing. And increasingly now I think it's drifting into what we used to call the evangelical churches uh, in their beliefs and in their values. And Lord love these churches. They do a lot for the poor and a lot for the needy. But many of them are so focused on the experience of praise and worship or the experience of Christ, which is wonderful. I'm all for warm fuzzies. Don't mishear me. Or helping the needy, which is certainly a reflection of love, that they've allowed themselves to drift from biblical theology or doctrine and biblical morality. And when you do that, you lose your salt and light in culture, and you end up with the current quagmire. 
Yes, you know, and you give a constant cry out for intentional semantic apologetics and polemics in the church. Uh, exactly what is that, and how do we go about doing semantic apologetics? Yeah, great, great question. Most, most people have heard of apologetics, you know, First Peter 3.15, uh, always be prepared to give a defense uh, of the hope that is in you, but yet do it with gentleness and reverence. And by the way, uh, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts <laughs> as the presupposition for all of that. And so in dealing with the objections of those outside of the faith, and I think that First Peter 3.15 is illustrated particularly in the book of Acts, especially Acts chapter 17, Paul on Mars Hill, dealing with all of the, the questions of the critics, and he connects to the poets and the philosophers and the critics of that day, dealing with their objections and uh, understands where they're coming from, quotes some of their literature, refers to their statues or one of their statues, and then draws people back to the gospel. So we all love apologetics. Most of us have heard of Josh McDowell and C.S. Lewis, and and uh, the list goes on and on and on and on. Uh, Chuck Colson had an influence on Francis Collins, you know, the genetic genius of the DNA project. But not so many have heard of polemics. Polemics is a very aggressive term, actually, in its etymology or its, its origin, and it means really aggressively defending the Orthodox faith inside of the church. If you want a taste of it, uh, read First uh, uh, John, 2 John, 3 John, or Galatians, where uh, Paul and John get pretty animated about the seduction and the deception that is taking place inside of the church and how they are preserving the biblical teachings inside of the church. So those are two categories that have been around a long time in the church. And what I'm suggesting is that we need to be very intentional about apologetic semantics and polemic semantics. We haven't, we ha that's really what the whole focus of the book and the article is on. We haven't been as intentional as we should be in the churches. And I really start with the pastors. You know, if you can find another book than my book, Seduce, that is better, fine, because that's not my real concern. My real concern is that pastors systematically work into their preaching and teaching and their educational programs, guiding the laity. I mean, they're shepherds. They're supposed to guide and protect the flock. They work with the laity in the church, and they walk them through these terms. Don't, please don't just do it in one sermon. Oh, my word, that's the worst thing you could possibly do. But work it into sermon after sermon and teaching uh, sessions after teaching sessions where you acquaint people with what's going on inside other churches and in, and in our larger culture as truth and faith and inclusion and love and social justice are all being redefined. And we have a lot of data showing that our children, the next generation, they're being incredibly influenced by these redefinitions, and they just don't get it. Why we stuffy evangelical Christians, you know, of maybe a, of a different mindset, really think that we have to lovingly affirm that God's plan is for a traditional monogamous heterosexual marriage where the goal is, is one man for one woman for life. And so I think that if churches begin to walk their believers through these terms, the power in the Word of God is already there. We've already been promised it, it won't return without profit or without benefit. And I think from history we know that when Scripture permeates culture, that things change. 
that slavery is abolished, that the gladiatorial games cease, that abortion diminishes. And so my suggestion is that rather than uh, throwing up our hands in despair or waiting to be beamed out of the world, <laughs> that we realize that Christians have been in tight situations before, and you don't have a snap decision. I, look, I love politics. Uh, my minor and my Ph.D. was in political science, and so there are political issues and legal issues that need to be addressed, and praise the Lord for people in the trenches dealing with that. So I'm all for that, but I think there's a root issue here, and that is if the churches become immersed in what Scripture means and how that compares to the lexicon or the terms being used in the culture around us, believers are going to be much more faithful in having a cultural impact in the world that we're living in. Now, it may take a significant period of time. Hopefully it can take place in the West, but if not, it may uh, pop its head up in some other culture, some other place, some other time. But the mess that we're in right now, we cannot have an impact or influence apart from a profound, transformative relationship with the personal word, Jesus Christ, and being fully immersed in Scripture, not just memorizing and knowing it, but knowing how it shapes our values and the very language we use and how it relates to the distorted terms and definitions that we see around us that are being used to change the future. Yes, you know, when I'm speaking in churches nowadays, before it was assumed people understood what I was talking about, you know, when I said gospel or family or truth, you know, uh, things like that. Now, you know, it seems, it's kind of annoying almost, you know, when I talk to people and I and suddenly I realized, wait a minute, they got a totally different definition of truth. Well, they got a totally different definition when I said family. or the, the, Yeah, and so how can, I guess what you're saying is pastors need to be aware that these Christian terms are maybe being heard differently now in their congregations, and, and they really need to clearly define those terms as annoying or uh, basic as it may seem. Exactly. I mean, we don't just have a problem with biblical illiteracy. One Yale University professor said that, you know, taught religion that, it was about 15 years ago, he said, my non-religion majors 25 years ago knew more Bible and theology than my religion majors do today. Mm. But we don't just have that biblical uh, illiteracy problem, but we really do have a biblical distortion and seduction problem that is taking place inside the church and inside of the culture. And if, uh, if our pastors uh, don't lead us in that, and if the laity don't become active, and start really thinking about the issues, yeah, we're in, a, we're in a heap of trouble, as they say, in terms of uh, where we are headed. But, you know, at a very minimum, the Church has to be faithful to Christ and Scripture, at a very minimum, and, and that's being diluted and diluted <laughs> uh, in our churches today. And so uh, I really do think that that's just absolutely key to us retaining our, our Christian identity. God gave us one thing through all of these millennia, uh, to guide his people and to lead his people and to form his people and lead to holiness and to allow them to be salt and light and to make a difference. And uh, it's Scripture. It's uh, the inspired words in Scripture that uh, can frame us and lead us and allow us to know how to interface uh, with the world around us. And the other constant is Christ's presence through the Spirit. So the Spirit works through preaching and teaching of Scripture but I think pastors have to be very, very intentional about looking at the terms that are being used that are influencing their own kids and grandkids and providing the biblical understanding of all of those terms. Otherwise, we'll lose our identity 
as biblical Christians. Yeah, well, you know, Doug, in the midst of, of the present crisis and vanishing cultural horizon, I mean, is there any hope for believers today? Absolutely. God is in charge of the universe. That's a great thing. And as one of my professor colleagues, he has a he has a bumper sticker, a bumper sticker he put on his office door, and he said, uh, "God is in charge, and He's in a good mood." <laughs> so that we confess and we believe it's it's uh, you know critical to our theology, and we don't really understand how providence will interface with what's taking place in our culture, and I don't think we have to put our entire attention on outcomes uh, or results. I mean, we seek those and we pursue those, but. As uh, you and many people know as well as anybody, there are a lot of twists and turns to how history plays out and and the way things develop over time. But I really do believe that a Logos-centric, Logos-Christ-centered and Word-centered and Scripture-centered, a Logos-centric church has the potential, even in this generation, even with all of the challenges that we see around us, has the potential of redefining the terms and the categories and the concepts of our culture such that there may be a way forward. History changes quick. Look what's just happened uh, in, our, in, in front of us. Look at Hitler came to power in 1933, and by 1939, we were in World War II. There are a lot of twists and turns to history. Many people said that, uh, in, you know, in Wesley's day, that slavery would never be abolished. But thank the Lord for Wesley encouraging Wilberforce to be going back again and again and again and again to Parliament and being ridiculed. That's really important. Taking up the cross, being ridiculed in the press, being ridiculed by other politicians, and nevertheless remaining faithful. And then by the time you get to the 1830s in England, guess what? Uh, Not only has the slave trade been abolished, but slavery itself is abolished in the entire British Empire. And that, of course, spreads through the revivals of the Second Great Awakening in America in the 19th century, which then leads to the abolition of slavery in the American context. And Timothy Smith has pointed out in his book, Revivalism and Social Reform, that every major social reform movement in America on the eve of the the Civil War, or as my Southern friends uh, like to tell me, the War of Northern Hostility, (laughs) Northern Aggression, Every one of those social reform movements was directly connected to revivalism. Wesley's uh, England was a mess before his revival swept through. America, before Great Awakening Number 1, was a mess. Even secular historians acknowledge that the revivals of Jonathan Edwards, uh, probably the greatest thinker in colonial America, and uh, Whitfield swept through the colonies, not only united the colonies, but they gave them a framework for the American experiment that moved beyond what was emerging, which was kind of European deism, you know, the the more liberal understanding uh, of who God is, that it captured the imagination of some of the founding fathers, but not totally, and certainly not most of them, and certainly not like what was taking place in Europe uh, with European deism. So we we have a lot of illustrations from history that hopeless situations where people thought that the world was going to end, uh, that there was no possibility of any improvement. Uh, that happened around World War II as well. That has not always been the end of the story. And uh, many who thought that they, there would not be another generation on planet Earth uh, were wrong and uh, we're still here. So as Billy Graham put it, you know, we have to live every day as if it's the day that Christ will return, but plan every day as if we're responsible for the next thousand years of human history. 
And I think if we keep our hands to the plow and immerse ourselves in Christ personally and the Spirit and in the very words of Scripture, and we teach them and we connect the culture, that's so important, connect the culture, connect to how justice and inclusion uh, and terms like that, uh, establishment of religion, religious neutrality, how those terms are being used in our culture, and guide Our Lady on how to respond to those issues, we might be surprised by the miracles of grace and the flourishing at culture, renewal of culture, revival of culture that could potentially take place. My, my biggest concern is I have some colleagues that kind of pray for revival in a very simplistic fashion, and Lord bless them, I'm praying for revival too, but we're incarnational Christians. Revival takes on form and flesh. The revivals in the 19th century, century took on form and flesh, and they were very engaged with culture, and that's why I think they made a difference that endured for generations. Yes, you're calling for a word-centered or logocentric uh, spiritual revival. What do you mean by that? I think when we're talking about a logocentric revival, it does mean that we're not sort of punting to God, and that's easy to do. I mean, you look around you and you think, oh my word, we're in trouble, there's no way out, so for those who believe in the rapture, Christ will rapture us and, and everything will be okay. We've just been wrong about that so often that I think we, we want to be expectant of Christ's return, but we also want humility. So I would say that individuals who, um, who kind of simplify or oversimplify revival, they're not understanding that revival has to be rooted mm, in the right. concept of the Logos, the doctrine of the Logos, the words of Scripture, the theology of Scripture. They have to be culturally and intellectually uh, engaged. And so in your local church, believers should be working out their calling in relationship to how you know, inclusion and social justice and intersectionality and even the terms like love and marriage and family, education and neutrality are playing out in the areas uh, that God has called them to and then seeking to be uh, light and salt in the world that we're living in. So I think it's, I'm not sure, I want to be careful about the term I use here, but it's, it's a more refined uh, understanding of revival. It's, it's a more developed, a more layered, a more nuanced understanding of revival that is rooted in the Logos of Christ. And this relates a little bit to Carl F. H. Henry, who predicted all this chaos in many of his works in the 70s and 80s, and he said that we, we've moved toward the twilight of civilization right. because we have a crisis mm -hmm. of word and truth and uh, we've lost our cultural, our civilizational connection to the Logos that actually provided us with so many resources for a better future. Folks, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Doug Matthews. He's the Provost and Vice President of Academic Affairs at Asbury Seminary there in Kentucky. Outstanding uh, seminary there. I highly recommend if you're looking for graduate uh, work in Bible and in going into ministry, Asbury is a great place to look at. Doug, where can people find more information about you and the things that you're writing about? Yeah, I'm looking forward to my next book if I can ever get to it, but that'll have to be down the road. But for academics, I wrote a specialized academic book for those in the academy called A Theology of the Cross, D.K. Matthews. And the focus there is that because of all of this that is happening, the way forward, the way the church can make a difference, a logocentric revival, is we have to take up our cross. There may be some challenging times, but it's usually through the suffering, the sacrifices of the cross, that the kingdom and resurrection comes to uh, the future. And so that's pretty important. But the more popular level 
is the book Seduced by D.K. Matthews. Of course, all of these books are available uh, on Amazon. And this, the Seduced book is one that I would, if, if you find a better book, that's great, but please buy this for your pastor. Put this book in the hands of your pastor. It's halfway between academic and popular, and I think pastors can really get their teeth into this. And then it's over 400 pages. It includes appendices with all of these terms defined and the biblical uh, alternatives, and they can they can walk uh, their their congregations. They can use it for training and teaching, but the pastors really need to lead. And then, of course, you've mentioned the Christian Research Journal from the summer of 2020, the word crisis, which would give a summary that most laity could get the gist of if they read that. Fantastic. That's Dr. Doug Matthews, the provost and vice president of academic affairs at Asbury Seminary. So, Doug, thanks for being a guest with us here on Evidence and Answers. Absolutely my pleasure. Lord's blessing upon your wonderful, wonderful work. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. Oh,